What if you could have a film critic, film festival director, film publicist, and fellow filmmaker guide you with your film's PR and marketing journey from pre-production to post? I'm Kevin Sampson, and my online course, PR for the Indie Filmmaker, does just that. In this course, I'm going to teach you how to set up your film to engage an audience and build a community long before you call action. I'll show you how to approach critics to make them aware of your film like publicists do. And as a director of two film festivals, I won't just teach you hacks and secrets to reduce entry fees, but how you can use the festival circuit to create buzz around your film. I'm a huge supporter of diverse storytelling and film, and I believe the most unique voices come from indie filmmakers. That's who I've supported over the years with my show, Picture Lock, whether on TV or on radio. With as much experience as I've had as an independent filmmaker myself, critic, publicist, and festival director, I realize that most indie filmmakers just need access to the knowledge that big firms provide to achieve success. So in this course, I'm going to demystify some of the process and give you everything I know and a behind the scenes look at the sides of the business you don't always see. So if you're an indie filmmaker that's looking to change the game with your film's PR and marketing, make sure you check out PR for the Indie Filmmaker. Head on over to PRForTheIndieFilmmaker.com and get a free preview of the course, PR for the Indie Filmmaker. Get your film seen, build community, and become an army of one. It's Picture Lock on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Welcome to another episode of the world-famous, award-winning show. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, filmmaker, film festival director, film critic, film publicist, and lover of film and TV. You can find movie reviews, all the back episodes, and so much more at PictureLockShow.com. Today, I talk with the writer-director of Grind, Reset, Shine, Margarita Jimeno, We talk about what inspired her to make the film about a friendship that helps two people lost in their own ways find a new beginning. If you found the man that sexploited and bullied your sister to commit suicide was back online, what would you do? I talk with Sarah Perosic, writer-director of Hashtag Like, about her film that explores that question. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast because podcast subscribers will get to hear my interview with Bailey Kobe, the director of Ragdoll, which will be playing this Saturday at the DC International Film Festival. Plus, Captain Marvel is the latest MCU installment to hit theaters. I've got my quick thoughts on the film. You can definitely check out my full review of the film at PictureLockShow.com. We got a lot going on this episode, but that's all ahead. On picture lock. I keep having these memories. I see flashes. I think I had a life here. But I can't tell if it's real. The call went out from Nick Fury, played by Samuel L. Jackson, via an old two-way pager in Avengers Infinity War during the end credits of the film. We saw the iconic symbol for Captain Marvel, and this weekend in theaters, we get our answer as to who she is and what her powers are. Kinda. Set in the 90s, Veers, a.k.a. Carol Danvers, a.k.a. Captain Marvel, played by Brie Larson, doesn't remember much about her past, but sees it in glimpses within her dreams. She's being prepared for battle by her mentor, Jan Rog, played by Jude Law, of the Kree race. 
Their enemy are shapeshifters called Skrulls, and after an interaction with the Skrulls ends with her landing on planet C-53, aka Earth, Veers must hunt for the Skrulls who landed with her while trying to make sense of her past. Her crash into the local blockbuster brings a young Nick Fury to the site, and thus begins a buddy comedy as only Marvel can do. The issue with Captain Marvel is that the first two acts of the film are a small, intimate tale that viewers would have ate up in 2011. The magnitude of what's going on in the 2019 MCU is so big that Carol Danvers' backstory seems so insignificant in the scheme of it all. I realize it's probably not, but the convention of the storytelling used by writer-directors Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck is all over the place for the first two-thirds of the film. It starts out as a mystery, hangover-esque tale, and then becomes a buddy comedy, and is heavy-handed in making sure its main character knows that she needs to stay in line. Once you get to the final act of the film, things take off. Suddenly, we have an engaging film that you feel more invested in. Don't get me wrong, this film is packed with brilliant performances by Samuel L. Jackson, Brie Larson, and Ben Mendelsohn as Tylos. The chemistry of the cast and the way they bounce dialogue off of each other is really kind of what excuses the first part of the film. Even smaller roles like Carol's best friend, Maria, played by Lashana Lynch, and her role model, Marvell, played by Annette Benning, are nice character performance additions. The final act also gives us something to run toward in regard to impending danger. As the marketing for this film suggests, there is a strong message of female empowerment that's great to see, especially for little girls who get to see a powerful female superhero on the big screen. The 90s references and soundtrack for the film, while I felt the songs are a bit on the nose coupled in some of the scenes, is a nostalgia fest for those of us who lived through them. The one other problem I had is that the film gives us an understanding of how Captain Marvel obtained her powers, but does not tell the extent nor give an actual clear description of them for us to understand what they are and why these internets are saying she's so powerful. So be sure to sit next to a fanboy or girl who can explain it to you if you don't have the history and knowledge like me. Overall, the film is another decent entry to the MCU, but it just doesn't have the same bite and excitement in storytelling that the films released in Phase 3 has had. It will be great to see her in the MCU going forward, and she's a welcome addition. This is a safe entry installment into the broader franchise, and I wish it was more. As always, be sure to stick around through the final credit sequences. I give it a C+. You can find the full review at PictureLockShow.com under the New Release tab. Hey, everyone. This is Laura Summers. I'm the co-writer and director of the feature film Rich Kids, and you're listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson, and unsatisfied with his place in New York's art scene, artist Peter Bjorn relocates to Berlin in search of change. Meanwhile, in a remote Polish village, Alicia prepares to become a nun, but feeling home in nature, her reveries continually distract her from her religious path. Both lost in their own ways, their friendship leads them to yet another new beginning in the film Grind, Reset, Shine. I have the film's writer-director Margarita Jimeno on the line. Margarita, welcome to Picture Lock. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Margarita, the first question that I always start out with, when did you first fall in love with film? I think it was a gradual thing. I, I'm, I'm coming from Colombia, from Bogota, and uh, in the 90s, um, it was still, um, you know, there was no globalization. So in order to get access to films that were art films, uh, people will ask 
different parents or family members who will be traveling, also for music, who will be traveling outside of Colombia to bring stuff and people will be subscribed to magazines. And I just remember that um, this group of friends, uh, we have like a bootleg kind of um, cinema sharing experience. And <laughs> I remember seeing films that were never be able to see in the regular cinema uh, such as Lars von Trier's films, for example. Like, I remember seeing Europa, and I was like, wow, that's possible. Like, what kind of cinema is that? Mm, um, mm-hmm. and, and I think just from, just from being, like, a very curious group of kids, um, we kind of had music and had access to all these things that were not mainstream and that, you know, were not... If, I remember coming to New York, then years later, walking into Kim's video video store and being like, oh my God, this is paradise for <laughs> us to get access to, to see culture, uh, you know, in that way was very difficult. So I guess my, my, I fell in love just because we had access to, to this kind of bootleg, uh, you know, we would bring VHS, uh, you know, VCRs to our, our houses and then be tape, recording tape to tape films that we liked and then we just like started watching over and over I guess like many people in the US who once they fall in love with a film they will watch it over and over but in our case um, it was a little bit more DIY trying trying to find like I love it. It's like you created your own kind of film film school by uh, finding like you know more obscure you know things that you weren't gonna be easily easily accessible to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like Agnes Varda and like I mean, I just remember seeing Agnes Varda and like Lars von Trier's movies and just things that were not accessible. Yeah. So, Margarita, if you could, like, let's jump into, you know, kind of your breaking in story. Could you give us, like, a brief history lesson of how you went from the young girl that was <laughs> bootlegging these different <laughs> films to the woman that's now directing Grind, Reset, Shine? Yeah, uh, I, came, I started out in art school, and uh, I was doing video art, and uh, photography was my main focus, and I was started to focus more in, in storytelling and uh, again I was in Colombia so um, I wanted to to go to film school and I came to New York and I did film school and when I came out of film school um, you know I started out as an assistant editor and I worked in many documentaries and I learned a lot about documentary making by working there because I was actually trained as a fiction director um, and then uh, I started making a, following a band called Google Bordello here in New York, and I followed them for a couple of years, and that was also my first feature film, and um, that had a really good festival run, and it was picked up by Kino Lorber, and it had uh, won some awards, and it's been distributed, and then since uh, I just started doing more um, directing and filming work and I kind of moved away from from assistant editing and and um and then I I kind of wrote loosely this story based on an artist that I met um that had a crisis and I originally wanted to do it with him but he didn't want to go back in that space so I ended up just looking for people that were non-actors and um and little by little the story just came together it took a long time I feel like sometimes um 
it takes me uh, a longer time to to kind of you know develop and like I remember going with Eva who is the main actress uh, who's playing Alicia the nun. We went to Poland on a hiking trip for 10 days in the Carpathian Mountains and we 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 also brought already a costume because we wanted to see how she will act and see because she's not an actor and um we spent 10 days in this beautiful countryside between Poland and Slovakia and we started finding like shrines that are inside of the mountain and then we actually started to like um mark a map because we were thinking that we will come back and we did come back two years later to film <laughs> what? and we were yeah and then we were like oh what if this doesn't exist anymore so we were kind of prepared like you know because we found this beautiful shrine in this like really remote village um in slovakia area uh and in slovakia is mainly um orthodox they're not they're not Catholic, but mm-hmm. this shrine is a Catholic shrine within the Orthodox community. So it's kind of abandoned. And this woman told us this crazy story about like there's a healer that used to go there, so that's why they haven't removed it. So we were especially concerned about that shrine that if it was not going to be there because it was very special. But but yeah, but we managed to find all the locations that we had been two years pr- prior. They were all still there. It was like the mountain was still there. Everything was there. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I was laughing earlier because I thought that what you were saying was that you and Ava went on a hike and you came back two years later, which I was like, that's oh. a movie in itself. <laughs> Can you imagine? Right. No, we, we, returned, we returned to the same hiking spot. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. Well, well for the yeah. audience, um that's listening you know if you could just in your own words what's the movie about and why did you feel like this was a story you wanted to tell yeah i i guess uh, you know we're living in this era where everything has become globalized and i think uh, a little bit of my story of my upbringing uh, has to maybe do with it which is that you know now when you're traveling in in cities major cities you know, if you go to New York and then you go to Berlin and L.A. or, uh, you know, you go to even Prague, uh, places like that that maybe a couple of years ago used to be more specific. When you when you arrived, you know, you felt like, oh, I have arrived in a different country. And I think globalization in some ways has been great, but in other ways in terms of uh, the native culture, it's been kind of um, followed up by, by the corporation. So I was thinking about uh, in terms of living in, in, in the city life that we live that has become globalized. And what about these people who live in the countryside who have no interest and really no need to consume anything? And maybe they're in a mountain and maybe we don't know them. So my idea was to, to have a parallel life between uh, our society of consumerism of of you know capitalism uh opposed to someone who's maybe um you know a buddhist monk or a nun who is in the countryside who doesn't need anything who just has a uniform they don't even need like fancy clothes or anything so how is that parallel life happening (laughs) at the same time yeah that was the idea Nice. So, ladies and gentlemen, I've been talking with the writer-director of Grind, Reset, Shine, Margarita Jimeno. 
Margarita, if you could, uh, kind of wrapping out here, how can people find out more about the film online or follow you guys on social media? Yeah, we're going to have our premiere at CineQuest Film Festival in March, um, the first week of March, around the 10th of March. We're going to have like five screenings there or four screenings. Um, and then we will, we, we have an Instagram account where you can follow us at Grind Reset Shine. Awesome. So it's just at Grind Reset Shine. Yes. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been talking with the writer-director of Grind, Reset, Shine, Margarita Jimeno. Margarita, thanks so much for coming on Picture Lock. Thank you so much. This is great. Hey, I'm Paul Dubridge, all the way over from Bristol, England. It's great to be talking to Kevin on Picture Lock. i got a new book out. It's called Making Your First Blockbuster. Write it, film it, and blow it up. And it's, uh, it's out now. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson, and on the first anniversary of her younger sister's death, rural teen Rosie discovers the man who sexploited and bullied her sister to commit suicide is back online trolling for new victims. After the authorities refuse to get involved, she takes justice into her own hands in the film Hashtag Like. The film stars Mark Menchaca of Ozark and Sarah Rich. I have the film's writer-director, Sarah Perozek, joining me today. Sarah, welcome to Picture Lock. Whoop, whoop. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> oh, man. We were talking right before. Sarah, I, I feel like we're going to be fast friends. <laughs> the first, yes, very much so. Definitely. First question I always start out with, Sarah. When did you first fall in love with film? You know, I think I'm not going to be particularly original here. I've, as you can tell by my funny accent, I sort of grew up all over the place. And as a kid, just watching TV, when you first discover TV, you know, back in the day, um, you get transfixed. And I remember seeing the movie, um, when I was probably too young to even see it, The Heart is the Lonely Hunter, um, screaming, wow. you know, black and white. I think I probably had a babysitter who wasn't watching what I was doing. <laughs> and, um, and I remember being, like, amazed. And there's that one shot of... Um, Burt Lancaster, spoiler alert here for those who haven't seen it, um, Burt Lancaster plays a creepy priest and he's done something evil to this woman who's in the story. Look at me, I don't want to give too much away. And um, she's, she's, she's underwater, tied to this jeep and her hair is flowing behind her and all these water reeds are flowing around her and it's sort of seen by someone from above at moonlight. And it was the most incredible image I think I've ever seen. And I said, I, how did they do that? What is that? I don't know what that is. And that was my more subconscious sort of falling in love with film. And then um, as I got a little older, uh, my mom had worked for a lady who, and they became friends. She had been a nanny for her. whose husband was a guy called Robert Rosson, who directed Cool Hand Luke and a bunch of other movies. And once we were visiting from England and she invited us over for tea and I got to hold his Oscar in my hand for All the King's Men. And I was like, this is a really cool, cool doll. I like this doll. <laughs> I like this doll. <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I love it. So yeah, so that's a good beginning, I guess. And then of course more, you know, meeting people who have done it and just being very excited about all of that stuff, yeah. 
Yeah, Sarah. So, you know, it's great when I can ask that question because it gives me a little bit more of a backstory of you. And I, I, I have the feeling that that image in your mind and the story definitely has somewhat played a role in uh, hashtag like, which I want to get into. But for the audience, if you could really quickly kind of give us a brief history lesson of how you broke into the industry. Sure thing. And um, yeah, I just have to say that's very astute of you. Very interesting. I hadn't even thought about that, Kevin. Yeah, I saw it. (laughs) (laughs) Sit down on my couch, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, Okay, so I got into the industry. I was a young woman. I actually left home very early on. I was like 16. I was on my own living in London. And I got myself into art school. And I realized, you know, when you're 16, you don't really know everything about yourself and you don't have that self-reflectivism kind of, is that even a word? You don't have the self-reflection to know what you want to make as an artist. So I said, okay, I'm going to take some time out. And then when I was 23, I went back to film school um, because I was living in London at the time. And, you know, from the benefits of living in in a soft socialist society, plug, plug, I got to go to college for free. I got a grant to go. You know, it wasn't uh, luxury, but I managed to have the space to learn filmmaking. And I went to a place called St. Martin's Film uh, Film School, and it was awesome. And I started, before I went, I started making little Super 8 films. Um, And they were always very focused on, like, a female sensibility, a female perspective, and maybe a slightly outsider perspective, because I'd had a, a kind of interesting, adventurous childhood living all over the place, and then I ended up, um, God, it's a long story, but I'll make it short for you. (laughs) I ended up in film school, and my first film was called Confessions of a Girl Who Never Received a Visitation from the Sacred Heart, which was, the film title was kind of longer than the film itself, but um, I I got it into a few little, like, local festivals, like the London Filmmakers Co-op and stuff like that, and I was like, okay, this is great. I want to do this. And um, then when I left film school, I came to New York because I was in love with um, American music and sort of basically hip hop and started kind of work, hustled my way. I literally got here with $50 in my pocket and hustled my way up by meeting people and networking. And I started um, making little promo things and then started directing hip hop music videos and you know, for a white girl from England, <laughs> it was quite, quite a feat to get my foot in the door, even though I, you know, loved the music and was a, a, more than a fan. I was, I was a respectful uh, admirant or, as they say, you know, amateur in the real sense of the word, when you love something, I loved it. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, so I was an amateur hip-hop lover. And, um, and then I, because that, that was a, you know, a limited scene for me, understandably, I thought, okay, how can I apply my skills in a way that uh, I can make a living? You know, because back then there was no money in that and that sort of thing. So um, I started doing commercials and saying I started doing commercials sounds so easy, but to make this shorter story, I got in, foot in the door kind of thing, got my hustle on and started doing commercials. And I think, you know, a lot of filmmakers I never wanted to be a commercial director, but so many of us have to figure out some kind of hustle to survive because you're making a film and you don't make another film for a year, two, eight. You know, look at Barry Jenkins. 
right. took him eight years to make his second film, you know. It's Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with self-described hustler that used to play with dolls named Oscar, <laughs> writer-director <laughs> of Hashtag Like, Sarah Perosek. Sarah, let's jump into Hashtag Like. In your own words, yes. what is this film about and why did you want to write and direct it? When I knew I was going to make my first feature, I started writing it about three and a half years ago. And it's interesting because it was before Me Too, it was before all this sexual abuse stuff. And I knew I wanted to do something that was um, about a social justice issue, but also commercial. And I knew I didn't want to do like a horror thriller thing. And, you know, it's crazy to think only three years ago, women were not getting a seat at the table. Women were not getting to make films. You know, I'm a, a Directors Guild of America member. And so as part of like all that crap they do, with they, they do all the charts and the pie grids and all that stuff. And God bless them that they do it. But you see that women at the time were only making, women of color were like 2% making new TV shows they're directing. Uh, women who are not of color were making, and I want to say white because that's too flattening, but they were making like, you know, 12, 11, 12, whereas white men were making 89%. Mm. Black men were doing 17%. So it's like, I was like, okay, rack your brains, girl. How can you get your foot in the door? I thought, I've got to make a film. It's got to be micro-budget. It's got to be um, somewhere where I can access locations and support and, um, you know, minimal cost. But something, so long story short, I decided I'd been looking online a lot of different stories about seeing uh, teens being sexploited and bullied and, and even some of them to suicide or death. Um, you know, uh, it, it, it's shocking to me that, and because you think 10 years ago, People were not like living online the way we do today. Right. People live online today and we get our affection from it. We get our attention from it. We get our networking from it. And it's like that double-edged sword where it's great and it's terrifying. You know, you hear stories about kids being abducted, like someone, some 13-year-old girl got uh, contacted through kick and abducted and terrible things happened to her and murdered. This was actually in Virginia in, I think, your wow. area. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was uh, two teenagers who killed her, um, who were students at, uh, uh, one of them was a student at Virginia Tech, I believe. Um, so that's one story I read. Another one was about a girl in Canada who had been, this older guy had got her to flash him. He stored her pictures. She didn't think he could. He made a fake Facebook uh, profile, because that never happens, right? Right. And um, he sent it to all her, he friended all her classmates in middle school, sent it to all her classmates and she was yeah middle school she was tortured and she ended up committing suicide so i thought how instead of making a story about that because that's more of a documentary subject how do i weave this into a narrative so i decided to write the story of a year after her death and make it a genre-driven girl kick-ass movie and it's the story of her sister who takes justice into her own hands when she discovers the man who exploited and bullied her um but not everything is as it seems kevin <laughs> in this story <laughs> well sarah you're, so, you're you're definitely um piquing my interest you know I, I watched the trailer i absolutely loved what i saw and honestly like you said it does feel a little bit more genre 
um, driven in terms of the cinematography, the style of filmmaking, and, and which to me it honestly looked a little bit more like a horror film. Um, and yeah. so, as we close out here for the interview, um, I want to mm-hmm. ask you one question. It says it's uh, one of the I guess taglines is the story of a girl who writes her own ending. I think that's a really powerful statement, and especially in mm. dealing with a subject like this. I have a, a little girl and a, a little boy, and I was actually listening to Film Spotting, and they were talking to Ethan Hawke about. So Adam Kempinar was gonna let his like teenage daughter, I think she's like thirteen, watch before sunrise, right? So this is random, and I'll get mm. right back to it. But um, and no, 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 go! I like it. And so they were talking, and uh, Ethan Hawke said something that's gonna stick with me in terms of my parenting. He said that, um, you know, a lot of times guys say, you know, I got a shotgun at the door, you know, blah, 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 or make sure you got your shotgun. And and he said instead of, um, you know, making his daughter feel like there's someone behind her, like protect, to protect her, he said he, tells, he, he wanted to tell his daughter that she is the shotgun, right? And so, mm. and I know, right? Like it stuck with me. I'm, I'm keeping that for life. So. <laughs> So there's something about empowering in this story, you know, obviously it's a girl empowering her to kind of write her own ending or, you know, boys, you know, growing up to like, hey, you guys can be powerful. You can be strong and you can write your own ending. Talk to me a little bit about that statement and why you felt like that was a a bit a major part of this film. Right. Well, it's a little bit of a play on words because there's stuff that happens in the film it's a little bit of a, 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 a foreshadow of what happens, but also it's about a girl taking control of uh, a situation that she feels powerless in because my protagonist, she, she does the right thing. She does some research. She goes to the authorities. The cops don't help her. Her mother is so uh, um, disabled by grief that she can't help her. So she tries all the right routes. And then she takes slightly a wrong route. And just to be clear, I it is a genre film and it does give you that genre, genre buzz. But I am totally against vigilantism. And uh, also the film is against vigilantism. So that's where the reversals in the script come in and the twists and turns. It becomes more of a noir, like psychological thriller where it's a think about where you are take intellectual control of your situation and don't always let your emotions uh, rule the roost, you know? Yeah. So head before heart. Well, Sarah, I got to say, I want to see it, and I'm sure that the listeners are going to want to check this out. If you can, um, how can people find out more about the film and follow you guys on social media? Well, first of all, um, it's premiering at Cinequest March 9th, downtown San Jose, uh, I'm super excited about it. And all the people at CineQuest are incredibly supportive. If you don't know about CineQuest, if you're listening to this, it's uh, an incredibly powerful, varied festival that is uh, located in Silicon Valley at the home of Netflix. You know, so that's a good thing to remember if you're an indie maker. Uh, you know, my film is super micro budget and I made it completely low budget. So it would be saleable and it could make its money back and I could move to the next project. Um, and then also we are going possibly to other festivals that I can't talk about, but if you want to learn more about Hashtag Light, 
Uh, we have a Facebook page. Just search us on Facebook. We have an Instagram feed, which has some cool behind-the-scenes shots, etc. That kind of thing. Awesome. Writer-director of Hashtag Like, Sarah Perosek. Thanks so much for coming on Picture Lock. I love it. Thank you for having me, Kevin. You're doing a great job. Picture Lock question of the week this week. What do you think about Steven Spielberg trying to block Netflix from having its films be Academy Award eligible? Leave me a message 60 seconds or less on your thoughts of this divisive issue, and I'll play it during next week's show. Call 202-350-1351. I've already got a voicemail from you guys, so I really appreciate the voicemails. It always keeps things a little more interesting. You can always let me know on social media or email me at pitchlockshow at gmail.com, and I'll read your answer next episode. You're listening to Picture Lock with the executive producer, Warren Corber of How to Buy a Baby. And creator and consulting and fertile, Wendy Littner. And we're here with Kevin Sampson. It's Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson. And in the film Ragdoll, Nora is that girl. The one who works overtime, helps out her family by all means, and leaves little for herself. But with one free hour a day, she takes out life's hardships at the local mixed martial arts gym. Nora must learn not just what she's fighting for, but what she is actually fighting against in the film Ragdoll. The film will be playing this Saturday at the DC Independent Film Festival. I have the film's director, Bailey Kobe, on the line with me. Bailey, welcome to Picture Lock. Thank you, Kevin. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> it's my pleasure to have you. I really look forward to talking about Ragdoll, but Bailey, the first question I always start out with, when did you first fall in love with film? Ooh, it's it's interesting. Film itself, I think, I, I really never considered. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in Los Angeles, and it, was, it seemed like you know that's what you know children of filmmakers did as as sort of a thing. And so I, I never really considered it as something that you could make or you could participate in, to be quite honest. Until uh, I went and I started as girls, girls, man, it's just girls. Like I was just like there was this really <laughs> cute girl I was into, and she was like a really indie chick, and she's like, we're gonna go see an indie movie, and I'm like. <laughs> What is that? Like, it was just like, you know, I was just like, it, you know, there's no Sylvester Stallone in this. I was like, I don't know what this is. Right. And so we go into this screening. Everybody there is wearing, like, you know, glasses that are really thick. <laughs> like, you know, everyone's just very intellectual looking with turtlenecks. I'm like, what is this world? And we sat down for a screening of train spotting. Blew my mind. Wow. Absolutely blew my mind as to that. I was like, that's a movie? That's a story? I was like, that, that, that became the first step into an idea that I could express or, or the human condition could be expressed in cinema, and, and it blew my mind. So it stopped being about girls, and it started being about expression. And that's when I fell in love for, uh, with cinema, about its ability to be expressive uh, for you know, certain human conditions, and, and certainly um, you know, uh, what, what connects us, and, and sometimes what disconnects us. Yeah, most definitely. So you, now you said child of a filmmaker. Is that correct? Like your parents were filmmakers, or...? No, no, I would see, I would see this like, uh, you know, there was uh, a guy ahead of me, a couple years ahead of me at USC, uh, you know, his last name's Reitman. And so it's like, it was easy <laughs> to see that he's a filmmaker, you know, it's just like, it never occurred to me that I, I could even attempt to, you know, cause I went, I went in, you know, starting with business and, and, and thought that, you know, uh, you know, I needed to get to, you know, an upstanding kind of, you know, nine to five thing and then succeed in this route. But, you know, to, to consider film just seemed very, 
you know, of the arts and, and, and possible to, to obtain, honestly. Yeah, that, that totally makes a lot of sense. Um, and one thing I, I was going to say, uh, just in regard to introducing you to the audience, if you could give us a little bit of your backstory in terms of how you got into the industry. I mean, you definitely are kind of hitting some of those notes just now. But if you could, uh, what was your route into the industry? This is this is this is the reason I need you, Kevin. Is is my publicist? This is like, <laughs> no, it's like you know. No, every time I show my work, people are like, "Where are you? Like coming from? How, how did you do all this?" Um, we, we, everything I've done is is word of mouth. And so when I when I first started into the industry, I was uh, my first industry gig was uh, uh, I got it by sneaking into film festivals. I, I read this book. There was this book called like How to Sneak into Film Festivals or something. And I read it at Barnes and Noble. Like I was standing there, he was like you know poor kid. And I'm just like, oh, wow, I can just sneak into film festivals? This is great. Okay, I can learn about films this way. And uh, I went to the <laughs> Los Angeles Film Festival. Bailey, I got to which... say, I, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, on one hand, as uh, as a film lover, I, I'm, like, 100% for it. On the other hand, as a festival director, I'm like, hey, get that guy. Get that <laughs> Now, this is what happened. This is you're, you're exactly right, and that's what happened. So I went to the Los Angeles Film Festival, and I was sneaking into everything, and... <laughs> At the end of it, the festival director came up to me and said, I've been watching you sneak into everything. And I was like, <laughs> I was like and I was like, oh, man, I was like, I'm sorry. You know, I was just, you know, I, I really, you know, I was a student at the time. And I was like, I didn't have any money. So it was just like, I was like, yeah, I just wanted to learn more. Right. And she said, okay, well, instead of doing that next year, why don't you come work for us? And so that was my start as a programmer uh, for the LA Film Festival. Uh, but it, it was brief nice. as during college and, you know, I, uh, uh, you know, had had a lot of fun with it, but then, you know, quickly moved on. And, uh, you know, I, I worked for the head of a studio, uh, Gareth Wigan, uh, over at Columbia Pictures, and then uh, the head of uh, what is now Way Morris Endeavor, one of the one of the heads, my gosh, there's so many partners there. Um, and, you know, did, did some time, you know, on desks and, and learning the business. And uh, from there, I, I got sort of, you know, uh, uh, lucky. Uh, I was one of those kids who graduated from, from USC with, uh, you know, a full deal, you know, at Universal. They, they loved the screenplay that I did. And, but I, I knew, had, having worked uh, previously for, for the head of a studio, that that takes time. And so I was kind of like bemoaning my situation to a friend who was casting Mad Men. I was just like, I was like, oh, poor is me. I could, you know, I can't get my movie made. Yeah. And uh, my, a friend of mine was just like, well, go across the street. There's this guy. He's like, you know, the French Rod Stewart, and he's, uh, he's recording in Los Angeles, and he's, he's in from Paris. And so I go across, and I meet him, and it just so happens that um, he, he was on the same label as uh, uh, the studio that I was, I was signed up with to do the movie, and they'd heard of my project. And so um, they were like, do you do music videos? Sure. <laughs> so I did, I did one, and it became number one in, in French-speaking territories and got a lot of play. And so I did the entire album. I started doing TV specials um, in France, and everything you know, was based out of there. And then I started doing uh, Louis Vuitton called and said, like, hey, the things that you're doing for these, um, you know, these music videos, can you do for us? And you're just like, sure. And so you kind of take one opportunity to the next, and it's all been word of mouth. And we have no publicity. And so anytime people look at my reel, they're like, what is this? How are you? <laughs> with Kanye West it doesn't even make sense right well that, that's awesome though man that speaks to your work and the quality of work and what you're doing the fact that you know it's you don't have like you know a business card or whatever it's just people are coming to you that's awesome it's just the work and, and that's you know I think something that, that speaks to you know 
what we as artists, you know, I, I think aspire to, you know, we, we love to get engaged in the work. And I think you probably as a filmmaker do that too. You're like, you know, you do these things to try and, you know, publicize your work to, to some degree, but you, you really are just hungry to get to that next story. Right. It's Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson. I'm talking to the guy that snuck into film festivals until he made a job for himself. He's the director of Ragdoll, Bailey Kobe. Bailey, if you could, in your own words, what's Ragdoll all about and why did you want to direct it? Ragdoll came to me th uh, through an assistant of mine who, uh, you know, she really wanted to try and find material that she was right for. And, um, you know, she was that girl that would, you know, wrestle in high school, wrestle boys in high school. Like, she was legit. And, uh, you know, there's these rough and tumble girls that, you know, I grew up with in, in the world of uh, martial arts, uh, you know, that would come in and I just haven't seen that girl on the screen before. And so I got an opportunity to, to, to view the screenplay and, and, and try and, you know, work with our group and say, like, what can we say about the role of violence in women's lives and, and be, you know, uh, authentic about it. And so, you know, it ended up being, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, great discussions about, you know, what, what's going on in people's lives and, and, and how violence does uh, affect women and, and to put that into uh, a story structure where, you know, we, we talk about building confidence within that within violence and within, you know, like you go into the gym, you start kicking butt and you start saying like, okay, I can handle myself. But then in the concept of what we believe as victory, you know, especially in cinema, it requires you to stand over the body of your, of your defeated, you know, opponent or, you know, to beat them down. Mm -hmm. But you try, that, you try that in real life, man. And <laughs> it's just like, you're going to jail. <laughs> right. you get it? it doesn't work. And you don't feel better about yourself. You, you really don't. And it's, it's a big misnomer that in cinema, I felt, could be said through, ironically, uh, you know, this, this format of, of an action film. And so, you know, uh, if you notice, we, we really take time to uh, make the dramatic scenes as violent as possible, and conversely, the fighting scenes as dramatic as possible. Yeah, that, it's definitely something that you pick up on in the film. Uh, if you could, I want to talk about your cast because I think from there we can go further into the film. Let's just talk about your lead actress, Shannon Murray. One, how did you find her? I feel like I'm, I'm going to geek out on her performance in a second, but, you know, let's talk about her for a second. Please do. Please geek out on her performance because it's a breakout performance. It truly is. Uh, Shannon is, you know, she, she's, she's at, again, she's a real hustler who, you know, came into the industry and, and wanted to find her way but always knew she wanted to act but wasn't given the opportunity and decided to say, you know what, I'm going to find my opportunity. And with my encouragement, you know, she went out there and found a screenplay uh, that met, I think, a, a personality side of her that she wanted to share. And when we talked about, you know, the type of, of person that we wanted to share, she, that, that kernel was already in there. So I knew she was going to, you know, germinate this character with so many great colors. And I think the performance is really outstanding. Yeah, you know, I think I would, I would sum it up with nuance, right? Um, mm. She has a very complex character. There, there are certain things throughout the film as you get to, to learn a little bit about her. Uh, and her character's name is Nora, you're slowly starting to put together, you know, who she is entirely. And uh, there was a scene, like, near the end of the film when I was just like, like, why, what are you, why are you doing this? That, like, makes absolutely no sense, right? But then, but then moments later, what I realized is 
Shannon, a.k.a. Nora, has done her research, and that's what a character who had been doing and gone through all the things that she'd gone through, that's the, that's the choice that she would make, right? And so it doesn't make any sense to us. Um, but definitely as that character, it made a lot of sense. Yeah, I definitely think that uh, she had an outstanding performance. It's one of those performances, folks, that, you know, when you go to film festivals, dare I say, maybe award-winning uh, performances. I do think this is a, definitely an indie film, a small story. Um, but but at the same time, it's a story that you don't get to see all the time, like you said. And especially with all the things that, you know, she's dealing with, how she's trying to keep, you know, food on the table and at the same time find her own self through MMA fighting. And so I guess one of the things that I wanted to ask you, just in terms of all the different characters that are kind of in this, they all kind of have their own uh, journey into uh, finding themselves. Um, so what is it like as a director in, in regard to the visuals and um, everything that you bring us in terms of trying to actually show that journey and that character arc? Uh, well, you're, you're, from, from your mouth to the uh, ears of the Independent Spirit Awards, thank you for that compliment. Uh, I, I love my ensembles, and, and it's something that for me is uh, innate in my filmmaking. I, I love working with many actors and, and finding character through lines and, and, and developing those characters so that they have a greater impact within our narrative. And it's something that I learned uh, from the Russo brothers, actually, who I, I got to mentor under uh, when they were working on this show called Community. You might know the Russo brothers who are doing small independent films uh, with Marvel now yeah. uh, called the, <laughs> the Avengers and Captain America, uh, Winter Soldier. Right, um, those so, small films. Uh, yeah, working with them. And, and what I really loved about being on the set of Community was there were so many great actors, so many great comedic minds that, you know, you're trying to play Don Glover across from Danny Pudi, across, you know, Alison Brie. It's just like it, it was Jim and Jim Rash is coming in there and Ken Jeong's coming in there. There are so many great actors in that room. How do you service them all? How do you how do you create scenes with them all that make sense? I mean, you know, across Chevy Chase's style is so different than, you know, sort of the up and coming, you know, UC beer style. And so, uh, you know, how to how to make those all work into a scene was something I really just soaked up uh, while it was on there. And, and it, I think it just transcends into my own work and how I work with cast and how I work with actors to even in the smallest role to to make that character really feel like part of the narrative. Yeah, speaking of it, speaking of that, I mean, uh, there's a character named Sasha, uh, played by Latifah Holder, and um, I think, you know, her and her friend, they they kind of go head to head with uh, Nora a lot, and they just ridicule her and everything, but. I mean, it felt so authentic in terms of the things that she would be saying and just kind of like, you know, that annoying person that's in your ear that's telling you that you're not worth anything, but at the same time realizes that she's in the same boat. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about her for a second? Latifah Holder is a genius. And I, I, I feel like she's another one of these great discoveries that, you know, I was able to make. Uh, you know, she, she had done uh, a couple of scenes uh, one with uh, Larry David um, on Curb that I was just like, oh my God, she's like incredible. I'm like, can we talk to her? Uh, because right. she can hold her own. Yeah. With Larry David, you know, in a scene. And uh, she was really fantastic. And so I was just like, let's talk to her. And, and uh, you know, in working with her, she has a great uh, uh, classical training, but she has taken that and transcended that into uh, an improvisational style that is really fantastic and is. 
you know, what powers a lot of the, the organicness of those scenes to where they do feel violent, because we talked a lot about that, of, you know, not just being annoying, but, you know, there's a threateningness to her. There's, there's something very uncomfortable about her confrontationalism that is violence, you know, and, and it's something that, you know, if, if we were to get into an argument, uh, God forbid, you know, you and I, Kevin, you know, we'd both walk away from it. We wouldn't necessarily have a black eye, but we'd be feeling a lot in our heart. Right. And we'd be thinking a lot. And that would mess, you know, that would mess with our psychology. Right. Yeah. You know, and speaking of friction, fighting violence, uh, that's obviously something that's in this film and it definitely comes out, but it comes out in different ways. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you about and talk to you about is sound in your film and what sound means to you. Now, one of the things that you were talking about earlier was how um, some of the action scenes were a little bit more uh, dramatic and dramatic uh, had a little bit more action in it. Um, and I feel as though you try to subvert the norm with the sound in your film. Specifically, we're accustomed to fight scenes and we're accustomed to sound effects, but there's a lot of groaning and moaning in this film um, to the point where in the beginning there, there's one scene where you think maybe it's something else that's going on, um, but you wind up seeing that she's in the gym, which I thought was kind of genius, especially coming off of the back end of what had just been said. Um, but at the same time, I, I just it, it, it definitely stood out that you're using the, the groaning, the grunts, the, the moans of fighting, working hard, working out uh, in such a way that it almost becomes, uh, you know, another score for the film. So uh, am, I, am I on the right track or, you know, could you, could you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. It's something that uh, David Van Slyke, uh, Emmy Award winning uh, sound mixer and I really sat down and talked about. And it was something that, you know, as you said, was different from the norm, you know. Uh, David would take this and run with it. You know, he's been in, on all my films, and he would run and take this and and really knock it out of the park. And it would feel like a really good action movie. And I said, "No, David, we are going to slow everything down, and we're going to the performance. Uh, you know, as you said, the the moans and the groans. They're you know, in the fight scenes, they're dialogue. They're 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 expressions of how you're feeling because mm -hmm. in the in the fight, especially the, you know, the final fight, not giving anything away." Um, you know, there's a lot of emotion behind, you know, the, the conflict that they, they've experienced up to that point and what they're exercising through the, the motions and, and sort of, you know, putting each other through pain. Uh, it hurts them. You know, they, they don't feel comfortable doing it. Yeah, we um, absolutely danced around everything in this film. Folks, I hope that uh, you'll definitely check out Ragdoll this Saturday. It's playing at the D.C. Independent Film Festival at 5.30 p.m. But, yeah, I think, Bailey, we really danced around everything. I wish we could kind of, like, talk about it more. I don't want to spoil anything for folks. But I definitely think, again, like, this is a, a intimate tale, one that we don't get to see all the time. Um, and it just definitely some just flashes of you know performances that I'm just like I can't wait to see where you know this cast member goes in the future so folks you definitely want to check it out again at the DC Independent Film Festival this weekend uh, if you could Bailey how can people follow you follow the film find out more information online and social media what I love about our movie title, Ragdoll, there's not much about it online other than a type of cat. And so uh, if you go to Ragdoll, Ragdoll Movie at Facebook, uh, Insta, or Twitter, uh, we're right there. So Ragdoll Movie. Awesome. Again, that's director Bailey Kobe of the film Ragdoll. And folks, 
make sure you check that one out. Bailey, thanks so much for coming on Picture Lock. Thank you, Kevin. That's all for this episode. I'd like to thank my guests, Margarita Jimeno, Sarah Perosic, and Bailey Kobe for coming on the show. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Blueberry, wherever you catch your podcast, so you can catch those unlocked versions of the show as well as the Picture Lock PR After Show. If you're a fan of Alexa skills, just say, Alexa, play Picture Lock Podcast, and I come right up. Feel free to leave a five-star review of the show as well. You're supporting the filmmakers and guests I have on the show by allowing more people to be exposed to the podcast. It's quick, it's easy, and free, and I definitely appreciate it. You can find Picture Lock on most social media. All social media is at Picture Lock Show. Watch back episodes of the TV show at youtube.com slash picture lock show and subscribe. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, you can fill out the form on the website. All music is done by Mike S, the producer 13. Make sure you follow him on all things social media at Mike S, the producer numeral one, numeral three, and hit him up for your music production needs. Thanks, bro. I'm Kevin Sampson. And until next time, I hope you stay locked on film. What's up, guys? Thank you so much for listening to and supporting Picture Lock. I absolutely love film, as you know, and have given my life to studying the medium. As a filmmaker, I understand what it takes to make a film from its inception to the big screen. As a critic, I've been able to see the business of film from the marketing side of things. And as a film festival director, I've been able to see the distribution side, but more importantly, the enormous amount of talented filmmakers out there creating and crafting stories from their heart. And that's why I've started Picture Lock PR. If you're a filmmaker or producer looking to engage audiences and create relevance around your latest or upcoming project, head over to PictureLockPR.com. We can help you with your film's publicity from pre to post-production. Get more information and see the clients we've helped in the past at PictureLockPR.com. PictureLock PR, finally, a partner as passionate as you.